Follow along as I read. When I'm done reading, I'll say this is God's word. If you are thankful for God's word, join me to say thanks be to God. Psalm 67. To the choir master, with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Say long. It's like kind of an instrumental break. That your way may be made known to on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Guys, why don't we evangelize? Why don't we tell people about Jesus? Why don't we tell people about who Jesus is, what he's done, and our need to turn from ourselves and trust in him alone? Why do we do that? Why do we send out missionaries around the world to tell that same gospel message? Why? Well, I bet if you're answering, if you had to write down an answer, a lot of Christians would say something like this, that we do that in order to try to rescue people from an eternity in hell. I mean, a lot of people would say something like, we do this because people like us, we know, people like us would stand condemned before God unless they trust Jesus who stood condemned in their place. That's why we do it. That's true. That is a great motivation for going out and speaking of Jesus. But here's Psalm 67. And this psalm reminds us that as for good of a motivation as that is to tell of Jesus so that people are rescued from hell, as good of a motivation as that is, it's an incomplete one. We need something more. I reached out to our missionaries this week that we support and I asked them, what, uh, how has God used Psalm 67 in our lives? Because it's such a missionary type uh, chapter. I even asked Emily Schaefer, uh, who's interning with one of our missionaries in uh, the country of Niger this summer, and she's told me that she's learning a lot about what is the true and deepest motivation to speak about Jesus to other people. And she says what is observed from Psalm 67, that if, if we talk about Jesus only in order to try to rescue people from hell, well, if that's the only motivation, it could lead us to some unintended consequences. It could lead us, the people who are talking about Jesus, to try to manipulate people and pressure people as many as possible to make as quickest decisions as possible. And it might lead the people who hear to think of Jesus only as a get-out-of-hell-free card. That people who hear might accept that, but they won't, wouldn't necessarily worship Jesus. So here's Psalm 67. And it reminds us that we don't want to just to see Jesus used. We want to see him worshipped. We Yes, we want to see sinners rescued from hell, but deeper still, we want to see God praised and enjoyed among all the peoples of the earth. That's the deeper motivation. So we speak of faith in Christ. We send people to the nations to do the same thing because there is worship that God deserves but that he's not receiving. That's what we're seeking to address. 
John Piper talks about this in his book, uh, a book about missions. I really commend it to you. It's called Let the Nations Be Glad. It's in our resource center in the back. Uh, He says this, that the infinite, all-glorious creator of the universe, by whom and for whom all things exist, who holds every person's life and being at every moment, God, he is disregarded, he's disbelieved, he's disobeyed, and he's dishonored among all the peoples of the world. That's what we're seeking to address. That's why we evangelize. That's, what we, that's why we speak about Jesus. There is worship that God deserves that he's not receiving. So John Piper goes on. We look out at the world and we see that the glory of God is not honored. We see that the holiness of God is not reverenced. We see that the greatness of God is not admired. The power of God is not praised. The truth of God is not sought. The wisdom of God is not esteemed. The beauty of God is not treasured. The goodness of God is not savored. The faithfulness of God is not trusted. The commandments of God are not obeyed. The justice of God is not respected. The wrath of God is not feared. The grace of God is not cherished. The presence of God is not prized. The person of God is not loved. That is what we're seeking to address. Yes, we don't want to see people go to hell. But more than that, we want to see the supremely good and glorious God praised and enjoyed. Speaking with uh, one of our missionaries, Mark Phillips, he told me that this is a bigger and more lasting motivation for why we speak about Jesus. That is the glory of God among all the nations of the earth. That's what Psalm 67 is about. Psalm 67 is a a song, as it uh, tells us, but it's also a corporate prayer. You read it, it's like a group of people praying together. And we're gonna walk through it in three stages. First stage, we'll see their prayer. The second stage, we'll see their appeal. And the third, we'll see their confidence. We got the structure of that on the back of your bulletin if you need help following along. So if you could summarize Psalm 67 in just one sentence, we could put it something like this, that the God of all the earth will get the praise he deserves from all the nations of the earth through the people that he's saved and blessed in the earth. So we could see that plan coming together as Psalm 67 progresses. All right, so three stages. Stage one, the prayer. We're looking at verses one to three. All right, the prayer. So I don't know if you probably know this, but you can tell a lot about what's in your hearts by what's in your prayers or maybe what's not in your prayers. You could tell a lot about what's in your heart by what you pray about. Uh, makes me think of one story from the Bible. It comes from Matthew chapter 20. You might know the scene. So here in Matthew chapter 20, the mother of two of Jesus's disciples takes her boys and she goes to Jesus. And Jesus, like most of us, can, see, can understand and recognize a mom who's on a mission. And before she even opens her mouth, Jesus asks her, hey, what can I do for you? And you think about it, what a question. Could you imagine Jesus himself asking you that? Hey, what can I do for you? What would you even answer? And what does she tell him? She tells Jesus, hey, Jesus, you see these two fine-looking young men here? Uh, I want them to have the best seats possible in your kingdom. Right? You, you could tell a lot about what's in your heart by what's in your prayers, by what you ask for. So right here at the beginning of Psalm 67, what do the people ask? What do they ask God? What do they want God to do for them? Well, you see, they ask God to be gracious to them. 
That's not even a, a request, right? That's like the posture that they make their requests. It's like them saying, God, we know that you won't answer any of our prayers unless you first give us grace. We know that you won't answer our prayer unless you give us kindness that we don't deserve. That's what they acknowledge before they even ask for anything. And then they ask for God to bless them. And what does that blessing look like? Does it look like uh, a, a, a nicer house? Does it look like, you know, a, a new Bentley? No, it, it, what does a blessing look like? It would look like God's face shining upon them. And that request might sound familiar if uh, you were around, especially during our time in the book of Numbers. It's a reference to the blessing that comes that God tells Aaron, the high priest, to give to all of his people at the end of Numbers chapter six. You might recognize it. Uh, it's, it goes like this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, right? Sounds a lot like Psalm 67. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So the way to appreciate that blessing in number six is to remember what God was doing around that time. Number six comes not just even a couple years after the Exodus, right after God delivered the Israelites in, out of slavery to Egypt. And before God was doing that, even while God was doing that, God told the Israelites why he was doing it, his purpose behind it. On multiple occasions, he says, I am delivering you in order to dwell among you. I am setting you free in order that you would be my people and I would be your God. He's delivering them to be close to them. So this blessing at the end of number six that Psalm 67 refers to, this blessing, it comes after another review of instructions uh, that God gives his people. Instructions about how they're to live, instructions about how God cleanses them from their sin. And all of this, this blessing in number six and the prayer at Psalm 67, it's a little peek at God's heart. That God desires to be close to people despite their sin. That God wants to give us more of himself. That's God's desire. And so the people in Psalm 67 recognize that of God and they pray accordingly. Maybe we could put it in our own words. Verse one, essentially they're praying, God, we want more of you. We want to know your smile. We want you to be closer to us. We want you to be realer to us. We want you to be bigger and sweeter to us than you ever have been before. God, we want more of you. This is the greatest blessing. And we understand that we don't deserve it, but we also understand that you are gracious. You see, in this prayer then, in that desire, Psalm 67 verse one shows you the heart behind true worship of God. The heart of worship, we might misunderstand, the heart of worshiping God isn't doing things for God. It's not doing things for God. That might be a result of our worship, but it's not the heart of worship. Because you know this as well as I do. You can do things for God and your heart can be far from God. You can do things for God just to be seen as a person who's godly. I mean, isn't that what Jesus told the Pharisees? So the heart behind true worship of God isn't doing things for God. It's being satisfied with God. That's the heart of true worship of him. Worship starts from the inside out. So what does it look like to be satisfied with God? Again, I'm helped by John Piper, who says, to be satisfied with God looks like to value God above all else that is valuable. 
to love God above all else that is lovely, to savor God above all else that is sweet, to admire God above all else that is admirable, to fear God above all else that is fearful, to respect God above all else that is respectful, to prize God above all else that is precious. That is what it looks like to be satisfied with God. That is the heart behind this prayer in Psalm 67. We want to be satisfied with you. We want more of you, God. So let me ask you, friend, are your prayers like this? (laughs) Do you ask God for blessings or do you ask him for the blessing of knowing him better? Do you seek to be satisfied with how good your circumstances are or do you seek to be satisfied with how good he is? If you're like me and your prayers often aren't like that, do you know what you can do about it? You can pray about it. That's pretty deep, huh? You can actually pray about your prayers. In fact, the Psalms leads you to do that all the time because David and others recognize something in themselves. They pray things like, God, incline my heart to you. What are they acknowledging in that prayer? They're saying, God, my my heart's inclined to other things. My heart's inclined to myself. I need you to work on me. They pray things like, God, satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love. What are they acknowledging? My heart's satisfied with other things. I need you to work on me. I need you to help me to be most satisfied with you. So they pray for more of God because knowing him is their deepest satisfaction. And this makes sense of how their prayer turns in verse two and verse three. You see, when God is more valuable and sweet and admirable and respectable and precious to you than anything else, when that is true of you, then you'll want his glory to spread. When you are most satisfied with God, then you want to be used by him. You think of it like this. You know you've begun to experience true joy and gladness in God when you want the same thing for other people. I mean, I've talked about it before. It's so not original to me, but uh, think think of it just like in everyday life. When you think the restaurant you ate at is good, don't you want others to eat there too? When you think that the show you're watching is good, Don't you want others to watch it too? Let's carry it to the next logical step. If you truly believe and tasted and seen that the Lord Jesus is good, why wouldn't you want others to believe that he's good as well? So the people who are satisfied with God right here, their heart becomes, we want the same thing for other people. That's the turn. So friends, if you want a heart for other people, that begins with having a bigger heart for the Lord. You'll just naturally want it for others. Think about a little bit. So throw back to kids time. This is actually part of God's plan for his people. Right? Think of God's people, the people he's saved and has made his own. Think of them like a giant container on top of a hill. Right? When God saves them and they are satisfied with him, it's like this container is filled with water. But God's purpose doesn't stop here. Although a lot of people think it does. Even his own people thinks his purpose stops here. They think God is just out for my own individual purpose and growth. And and that's true. God does seek your good. But his ultimate purpose is the spread of his glory. His purpose is that he wants to fill the container and for it to spill over. For the water to roll down the hill and fill the valleys of the earth. That's his plan. 
It's the plan he told to Abraham in Genesis 12. It says, Abraham, I will bless you and make you a great nation so that you will be a blessing. So that in you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So the Israelites, Abraham's descendants, were meant to be that container at the top of the hill. Exodus 19.6, God intends them for, to be a kingdom of priests to the world, meaning they are to represent what he is like to all the nations around them. But the thing is, time and again, instead of being filled up with God, satisfied with him, they are satisfied with idols, replacements for God. And instead of reflecting God to the world, they reflected the world back to God. And so God gives his famous indictment of his people through the prophet Jeremiah. He tells them, guys, you are like empty containers. But God wouldn't fail to keep his promise. At just the right time, the book of Galatians says that God sent his son to be born in the line of Abraham, to be the seed, to be the son of Abraham that his people failed to be. So that in Jesus, Colossians 1.19 says, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. There is no one else who has been truly, fully satisfied with God like Jesus was with his father. There's no one else who has reflected God as much as Jesus has, perfectly. There is no one else who the father's face has shined on like Jesus What does the father say about Jesus? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And yet, here is Jesus, this filled vessel, and he is crucified on top of a hill. And instead of the father's face shining on him, the father turns his face away and Jesus' blood is poured out. But it's not just to show his own devotion for his father, What does Jesus himself say? My blood is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. It's poured out and rolls down and blesses those from all the nations of the earth, just as God has planned. We read about it in Isaiah 52, that his chosen servant would cleanse those from many nations. In Jesus, all the nations are blessed. And to verify this, God rose him from the dead. So that now whoever turns from themselves and gives themselves entirely to him, God's face will shine on them like his face shines on his son. For all those who have received Jesus, they will be filled with the spirit. And the spirit gives us new hearts so that we truly worship, so that we truly enjoy and are satisfied with God instead of other things. And when this happens, when we are filled up Those gracious blessings that Psalm 67 talks about, those blessings of knowing the way to God and knowing his powerful salvation, those blessings are now poured over out of us and spread to others. So that in Jesus, as he says, we become that city set on a hill, used by God to fill the earth with his glory. So what we're saying is that the prayer of Psalm 67, one to three, is answered in Jesus and Jesus' people, those he saves. So if this is their prayer, the beginning of Psalm 67, what can be your prayer in light of these verses? Here's a start. You can pray, God, fill us with you so much so that through us, you might fill others. 
And we dare ask you this because Christ was poured out for us and in him we've received all that we need. You might pray, God, I don't want to be satisfied with little sips of your character and your love. I want big gulps to be refreshed and enlivened and filled every day. I want you to be sweet to me and the things that take me away from you to be bitter. I want such a sweet and all-consuming love for you that it overflows to others. I want to be so satisfied with the gospel that it is your power for salvation that I want that same gospel for the people in my life. God, use me to spread your glory. Friends, if this is our prayer, then it's going to change how we come to church. It's going to change what we want at church. When we come to church, we won't just want life tips. We won't just want cultural commentary. If this is our prayer, if this is our heart, then every day and every time we gather with each other, we will want God. He's who we want. We want more of him. West Creek, would you pray for that for yourself, for your brothers and sisters every Sunday, that we would want God. And that God would be gracious to us and show us how big and beautiful and glorious and powerful and lovely that he is. And pray that he would so fill us that we overflow and his glory spreads to others. That we actually make disciples here at West Creek. That there are actual people who are outside of this place that we pour into and invest in. Tell about Jesus. Seek to help them grow. That even here, We would be so bold to pray big prayers to a big God that you would pray that God would raise up missionaries from this church who are so filled up and satisfied with the Lord that they are sent out and they want others for the same thing that they have for them. And they go out to the nations that haven't heard and have no access to the gospel. That's their prayer. That's the longest stage. Second is their appeal. In verses four and five. So they pray that God would give all the nations true joy and gladness and true joy and gladness come in the Lord and being known and loved by him. Verses four and five, then they give an appeal. Now it could be, verses four and five could be their appeal to God. In other words, verses four and five could be them telling God, God, here's why you should answer our prayer. Or verses four and five could, there, could be their appeal to the nations. It could be nations, here's why you should seek joy and gladness in God. I think either one of those appeals works. I'm going to talk a little bit about both of them. Verses four and five could be their appeal to God. They could be saying, God, answer our prayer for the nations to be glad and sing for joy because, God, we know that this is your heart. It says, God, we know that you judge the peoples with equity. In other words, God, we know that you're fair. God, we know that you don't have different standards for different peoples. God, you know, we know that you don't just care about the wrongs and injustices in one place. You care about the wrongs and injustices in all places. You judge the nations with equity. And if that's true, God, then all the nations need your saving power. God, answer our prayer for the nations to be glad and sing for joy in you because we know this is your heart. We know, as they say in verse 5, that you guide the nations upon the earth. God, we know that you're not indifferent toward the people you've made. We know that you don't stand far off from them. We know that you're not only the judge, you're also the shepherd. 
We know that not only you are just and will by no means clear the guilty, you are also merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So they're saying, God, hear our prayer because we know what is true about your heart. Friends, is this what your prayers are like? Do you pray based on God's heart? And the only way you're going to pray properly is if you know him properly. And the only way to know him properly is to know how he has revealed himself in the word written and the word incarnate that is in Jesus. You need to know the Bible and you need to know Christ. It's the only way to know God accurately. Do you pray according to God's heart? This is what the book of Jonah is about, actually. You might remember Jonah as being the guy who God told them to go to this big, scary place and tell them this message that people need to start listening to God and stop doing what they're doing. And Jonah says, no, he flees the other direction then he gets swallowed up by a whale. He ends up in the place anyway, and he does it. And the people listen. A lot of people would present the story of Jonah as just you need to have faith in God to do scary things for him. But was it just because Jonah was scared that he refused to go to Nineveh and preach to these awful people? Is that the only reason? Because he was scared. No, he actually tells us the reason in Jonah chapter four. He says, Lord, is this not why I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, the opposite direction. For I knew that you are a gracious God and you are merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. See what Jonah is saying? He's like, God, you're confirming my suspicions about you. God, you know what your problem is? Is that your heart needs to be more like mine. In prayer, friends, you don't seek to, for God to conform his heart to yours. You seek to conform your heart to God's. Are you praying like that? The story of Jonah shows you that God is more ready to be merciful than you are. Verses four and five is their appeal. It could be their appeal to God. It could be their appeal to the nations why the nations should be glad and have joy in the Lord. Now, and notice, just a little housekeeping note. It's not to some nations. It's not to one nation. It's to all the nations. That doesn't mean every person from every nation will end up worshiping the Lord, but that does mean some people from every nation will end up. The Bible is clear that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. He is for all the nations. And it's their appeal to them. It could be their appeal to them to say, praise the one and only living God. Why? Well, because God judges the peoples with equity. That's why they should do it. That's a comfort. That's a warning too. It's a comfort because they're telling these people, God isn't unjust like your rulers, like your corrupt politicians. It's a comfort because they're telling these people, God, listen, God doesn't take bribes. He doesn't take advantage of the weak. He doesn't favor the rich. He's fair. He's impartial. That's a comfort for the wrongs done to you, the wrongs done around you. But there's also a warning for the wrongs done by you. And you and I have done wrong. You and I, friend, we have not praised our creator. You've been satisfied with other things besides him. You and I, we've disobeyed him. We haven't treasured him. We've robbed him of the praise that he deserves. What this is telling you and it's telling me is that God won't make an exception for us. He judges people with equity. But the appeal continues. Listen, all the nations of the earth. Praise the one and only living God. Why? Because God also guides the nations upon the earth. He's the judge and he's the savior. 
He's the judge and he's the one who would take the judgment that we deserve upon himself. So my friend, if you're not a Christian, if you don't know God's saving power in the gospel, if you haven't turned from yourself and given yourself entirely, trusting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, hear this appeal from the word of God. This is where true joy and gladness is. In God alone. I mean, how could it be otherwise? God is the source of all life. He's the source of all goodness. He's the source of joy and gladness. An old Christian, Augustine, said it famously. He says, God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So my friend, if you're not a Christian, you will be restless for the rest of your eternity until you come to God through faith in his son. Come to me, Jesus says, all who are burdened and heavy laden and I will give you rest. So we've seen their prayer, we've seen their appeal and finally, we see their confidence in verses six and seven. The psalm takes on a little bit different of a tone by the end of it. They say this, the earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. So they're confident that God's gonna answer their prayer. They're confident that God's gonna listen to their appeal. They're confident that the blessing they receive will in fact pour over to the ends of the earth. What makes them confident? Well, I think it's two aspects about the Lord that's seen here in verses six and seven. Two aspects about God give them confidence. It's his faithfulness and his sovereignty. I'll explain. They say the earth has yielded its increase. That's a look backwards, isn't it? It's a look at something that has already happened. And it's a look at a different realm. It's, it's a different example. They look around. They see around the world in every nation. We can see it even right now. Around the world in every nation, the maker of everything has faithfully caused crops to grow. God's brought harvests from Albania to Azerbaijan to Algeria to America. He hasn't left himself without proof of his faithful care. The world may have left God, but God has not left the world. The Apostle Paul tells people in Acts 14, God did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. You remember how the Lord Jesus teaches us, teaches us to pray, Right? Our Father in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. How many times has God faithfully answered that prayer for you? How many times has God faithfully answered that prayer for people who want nothing to do with them? God's been providing for billions of people on a daily basis for thousands of years. His faithfulness gives us confidence. I use another, I've heard another pastor use this analogy uh, that when we pray, it's kind of like we're asking God to write us another check. So in this instance, we're asking God that he would spread the praise of his name to all the nations of the earth. So when we ask God to write us another check, what we should do is flip back through the old checks that we've received. See the ones that have been personally addressed to us. See all of the gifts and benefits and protections and provisions that God has faithfully given to us. So right here, Psalm 67, as we pray for God to spread the praise of his name to all the nations of the earth, flip back through the old checks. See the ways that he's done it already. Read the book of Acts, how God takes the gospel from 120 people believing it in the city of Jerusalem 
to the entire Mediterranean world by the end of it, even to the city of Rome. You can read in church history how God has spread the praise of his name to the people of Ireland and to China and to Burma and to India. You can see how he's doing it right now, faithfully spreading the praise of his name to people in Iran, in Greece, in Turkey, in Kenya, and more. The earth has yielded its increase. It will keep doing it. So here's what the people are saying by the end of Psalm 67. They're saying that if God has been faithful to raise up a harvest of food across the world, then surely he'll also raise up a harvest of those who praise him across the world. What does Jesus say in John 4? Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white with harvest. What gives them confidence that God will answer their prayer? How can they be confident that God will spread the praise of his name to all the nations of the earth? Two aspects of God, his faithfulness and his sovereignty. Now that second aspect isn't directly stated in the psalm, but I think it's implied throughout the psalm. So when they say something like, when this is a prayer, let the peoples praise you, let all the peoples praise you. Who are they asking to accomplish this prayer? Isn't it God? Isn't it God who accomplishes the spread of the praise of his name? It tells you that they know God's priorities, right? God is out to bring glory of his own name. Friends, God is about God. If there is nothing better than he is, if there is no other God, if he alone is God, how could he be for anything else besides himself? And right here in Psalm 67, we see that this pray, the spread of God's name actually leads to the good of God's people. So how could God be the one who accomplishes this? How could God be the one who, who spreads the praise of his name if he himself is not sovereign over the hearts of men? If he himself doesn't rule over the hearts of people? The book of Proverbs says, that the king's hearts are like streams of water in the hands of God. Now make no mistake, God uses our words, he uses our witness to spread the praise of his name. Make no mistake, people must believe these are compatible. But I'm just thinking of Jesus' own words. Does Jesus say that we will build his church? I don't remember him saying that. I remember Jesus saying that I will build my church. He might use us, but he's the one who does it. I remember reading that God is the one who turns the heart of stone into the heart of flesh. I remember reading in Ephesians 2.8 that for by grace you have been saved through faith. But even this faith isn't your own doing. It's the gift of God. I think of Lydia's story in Acts 16, how God himself opened her heart so that she would receive the gospel. Friends, if God's not sovereign over hearts, then we would have no chance of changing them. So we can pray with confidence that God's praise will spread to all the nations of the earth because he's sovereign. We see this final outcome among the last scenes of the entire Bible in Revelation 9. It's the answer of the prayer, Psalm 67. It goes like this, look, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and with the palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. If God isn't sovereign, if he doesn't reign and rule over all people in all places, 
How could you be confident that that final scene would happen? In other words, if it's left to you and me, how on earth could we bring that about? God's the one who's going to accomplish it. He will use us to do it, but it's his work. And you might say to me, well, if God's going to do this anyway, then why bother with, with telling people about Jesus? Well, if you say that to me, I'd say to you, if God's not going to do this, how could we have any confidence that people will respond? God's securing praise of, from all the nations that he is the one who does this. That shouldn't lead you to say, why bother? It should lead you to say, I know my labor won't be in vain. His word won't return void because he is sovereign. So we bring it full circle back to the main point of Psalm 67. The one who is more valuable and sweet and admirable and respectable, the one who's more precious than anything else, he will get the praise he deserves from all the nations of the earth. They will be glad and sing for joy. Let's pray. God of all the earth, would you satisfy our hearts? Would you incline our hearts toward you so that we value you above anything else, so that we are so filled up that we pour over into others and that the praise of your name spreads to all the earth? We pray even here, God, that it spreads to those who are not praising your name right now, who have not called upon the Lord Jesus to be saved. Would you lead them to do that this morning? Oh God, who is sovereign over hearts, would you be pleased to use us and glorify your name through us. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.